Okay, so the first name to familiarise yourselves with in relation to racial capitalism is that of an incredible scholar by the name of um, Cedric Robinson, who authored a number of books, including one entitled Black Marxism, in which he sets out an engagement with the context and politics of what's known as the black radical tradition, which is something that we'll come back to a little bit later on. Um, And it's also in this work that Robinson borrows this concept of racial capitalism from South African intellectuals who were using it at the time to analyse the apartheid context. And he extends this concept into a more expansive global historical analysis and a broader theory of global capitalism. So you're probably already familiar with the name Karl Marx, as Marx is one of the most famous European political economists whose work, especially his most famous volumes of work known as Capital, has really inspired intellectuals and activists globally for the past 150 years or so. But even though the work of Marx has had global resonance and has inspired liberation struggles, his own focus of analysis was much more on the European industrial experience So, for example, he really closely considered the production of value by labourers spinning cotton in in English mills, more than he considered the production of value by the enslaved in the colonies picking the cotton destined for those mills. And overall, there are really important aspects of the global economy, particularly colonialism, enslavement and plantation production, which were more broadly in in the European political economy tradition, not sufficiently factored into theories of of accumulation. Um, But still, Marx was also the key interlocutor for Cedric Robinson in this text, Black Marxism. Um, And Robinson advanced a really generous engagement with, um, but also some important criticisms of some of the fundamentals of Marxist thought in in this important book. Um, And we'll talk a bit about the ways Robinson challenged Marx just a little bit later in this lecture. But first, we'll cover how Robinson set up the idea of racial capitalism by approaching Europe through a historical and anthropological lens and examining capitalism as largely a cultural product of Europe. And this method of tracing its history reveals capitalism to be a system imbued with flaws and logics which are products of European histories. So in Black Marxism, Robinson defines something that he calls racialism, which he says is a European cultural product. And racialism refers to, and I'll quote Robinson directly here, the legitimation and corroboration of social organisation as natural by reference to the racial components of its elements. So to state this in a slightly different way, racialism broadly refers to how unjust forms of subjugation and exploitation are broadly accepted within a particular social system 
as natural and inevitable because of perceived intrinsic differences between cultures or ethnicities. So the idea that some supposedly inferior people are meant to be exploited for the material benefit of supposedly superior others. And Robinson presents evidence for the existence and reproduction of racialism by documenting historical forms of exclusion, enslavement and exploitation which have been enacted along the lines of national or ethnic difference. And the examples that he covers go back to racialized groups that we would today probably include as Europeans, but who were historically referred to as barbarians. And he also covers, for example, the, the English construction of the Irish as inferior and therefore exploitable. So racism itself and the forms of racial social ordering, which would go on to take many forms under capitalism, began, according to Robinson's account, with oppressions that took place within a Europe in, in formation. Um, and from there, what was rehearsed across the Mediterranean initially as Europe's internal oppressions would ultimately be extended and played out and taken to new extremes across the Atlantic and elsewhere. And when Robinson articulated his theory of racial capitalism as a European cultural product, he described a system um, which is not fully explained by the technical dynamics of accumulation and value production alone. So instead, Robinson sought to analyse how and why it was to quote him directly here, that something of a more profound nature than the obsession with property was askew in a civilization that could organize and celebrate on a scale beyond previous human experience, the brutal degradations of life and the most acute violations of human destiny. So these brutal degradations of capitalism include the kinds of expropriation, dispossession, exploitation, degradation that we still witness across the world today. And a system founded on all of this, um, according to Robinson, requires something more than simply class distinctions to reproduce itself. So... Some really important thinkers have done more recent theoretical work to expand our understanding of racial capitalism. So you might want to follow up work by Robin D.G. Kelly, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Gargi Bhattacharya and others. And to draw very briefly on some of their reflections, racial capitalism is, in Ruthie Wilson Gilmore's terms, simply all of capitalism. And emphasising the racial is simply a means of understanding, to pick up Gargi Bhattacharya's words here, the role of racism in enabling key moments of capitalist development. And Bhattacharya also says that racial capitalism includes the sedimented histories of racialized dispossession that shape economic life in our time, but is never reducible to those histories. So, in short, the racial in the compound concept of racial capitalism forces us to confront 
the unmistakable material histories of race which live on in the present, but it also forces us to confront the novel mutations of race and capitalism, which produce new and renewed forms of exploitation and expropriation through contemporary market innovations. And these material histories of race are really easily missed within a political economy that's overly rooted or wholly rooted within um, the European proletarian experience. Because, for example, while proletarianization, so this is the formation of the worker from the peasantry, while proletarianization in England created workers for the mills and factories, the picture has been quite different elsewhere. So we risk missing how workers are produced and extracted in relation to other economic and industrial processes. So to pick up Cedric Robinson's words again, the organisers of the capitalist world system appropriated black labour power as constant capital. Black communities were extracted from their social formations through mechanisms that minimised the disruption of the production of labour. And to apply this to the present, we might say that the constant production of poverty in the global south through processes of extraction, structural adjustment, the corporate exploitation of labour and degradation of the environment, among various other methods. This production of poverty creates the conditions which drive labour migration to the global north. So it sounds somewhat counterintuitive, but the response to this um, in the global north is actually economic inclusion within highly exploitative, low-paid, high-risk jobs in countries like the US and the, US and the UK. Um, but this economic inclusion of migrant labour from the global south is coupled with political exclusion by means of really complex bordering practices, um, brutal deportations and so on. So we can also argue that political exclusion is in itself racialising in the way that it constructs some people as outsiders, as others, as inferior, as undeserving, and confines people to degrading material conditions. So the current inhumane and harmful detention of asylum seekers at Napier Barracks in the UK during the COVID pandemic is a really key example of this. And of course, racialization as inferior in turn keeps racialized labor cheap and exploitable. So there's a dynamic and complementary relationship between economic inclusion and political exclusion. And so the capitalist world system can still be said to produce racialized labor power as constant capital in Robinson's terms. So let's just spend a moment clarifying what we mean by the black radical tradition. So this is the broader tradition from which Cedric Robinson's intellectual project is birthed. And Robinson himself was directly in conversation with thinkers such as C.L.R. James, Richard Wright and Du Bois in, in particular. 
And this tradition in Robinson's reading is neither derivative of whiteness, so it's not simply a response to white power, um, nor was it birthed in the Middle Passage. So in other words, it doesn't begin with black enslavement. And instead, it draws on those modes of resistance, which were, just to pick up Robinson's words directly, formed through the meanings that Africans brought to the New World as their cultural possession, meanings sufficiently distinct from the foundations of Western ideas as to be remarked upon over and over by the European witnesses of their manifestations. Meanings enduring and powerful enough to survive slavery to become the basis of an opposition to it. So to emphasise Robinson's words, the tradition draws on ideas and meanings which predate and, and survive the transatlantic slave trade and which have formed the basis of resistance to enslavement and to other forms of oppression since. So fundamentally then, the black radical tradition is the antithesis of racial capitalism. Rooted in a distinct cultural con consciousness and cultivated against and in spite of enslavement, colonisation and exploitation, it materialises what Robinson calls the collective and personal chemistries that congealed into social movement. So worded another way, the black radical tradition is a dynamic and forceful ideology of liberation. So Cedric Robinson's historically informed theorization of racial capitalism from this black radical position challenged the work of Marx in at least three really important and in interrelated ways. So first of all, where Marx understood capitalism as a rupture from European feudal society, Robinson instead documented the extension of feudal relations into what he called the larger tapestry of the modern world's political and economic relations. So in other words, the antagonistic social codes of feudalism remained present in the DNA of capitalism as it developed and spread. And second, where Marx anticipated processes of rationalization or homogenization within social classes under a capitalist system. So for example, a cohesive working class with a unified class consciousness. Robert, Robinson instead observed a system with a tendency to differentiate and exploit along lines of difference. So just to quote him again directly, the bourgeoisie that led the development of capitalism were drawn from particular ethnic and cultural groups. The European proletariats and the mercenaries of leading states from others, its peasants from still other cultures and its slaves from entirely different worlds. The tendency of European civilization through capitalism was thus not to homogenize but to differentiate to exaggerate regional, subcultural and dialectical differences into racial ones. And finally, where Marx abstracted a universal theory of capitalism from an empirical reading with a prominent focus on the industrial manufacturing centres of Europe, Robinson instead shifted analytical attention away from England's mills 
to the really diverse formative sites of capitalist development across the colonised world. And he disturbed those more Euro-centred theories of class consciousness formation in the process. So an analytical shift from the English factory to the plantations of the Caribbean, for example, serves to complicate universal abstractions around labour and class and revolutionary consciousness based on the European proletarian experience. We start to see these things differently. So let's think a little bit more about these three adjustments in turn. So beginning with Robinson's account of the extension of antagonistic feudal relations into capitalist formations. So the text Black Marxism deals with the continuities stretching from the unfree forms of labour exploitation to which the so-called Slavs and the Irish and others had been subjected to later arenas of capitalism in which enslaved labour remained, what Robinson called a critical basis of production. So by the time Europeans were in a position to more extensively extract and exploit the power of black labour, they'd already developed the racialising tools which could be adapted to justify the enslavement of other peoples. And shifts from feudal serfdom to capitalism simply served to relocate rather than end enslavement as a central form of labour exploitation. And medieval slavery within Europe served as a model for Atlantic colonial slavery, in Robinson's words. And relating to the second adjustment that we identify here, the assertion of capitalism's tendency to differentiate and to exploit difference, rather than necessarily homogenise within social classes, Robinson emphasises the persistent centrality of migrant labour to capitalism. And this fact is often lost in political economy analyses, which sometimes confine themselves to a particular nation and which reproduce categories such as the English working class, divorced from their wider connections and, and overlaps. So Robinson reinforced instead how working class consciousness became acutely attuned to the value of racial and ethnic difference and the relation of these to the constructed and very much enduring false distinction between skilled and unskilled workers. Going further, he explained that, to quote him directly again, of particular interest is the extent to which racialism and subsequently nationalism, both as ideology and actuality, affected the class consciousness of workers in England. In the intensely racial social order of England's industrialising era, the phenomenology of the relations of production bred no objective basis for the extrication of the universality of class from the particularisms of race. Working class discourse and politics remained marked by the architectonic possibilities previously embedded in the culture. So, in other words... The experience of work doesn't inevitably lead to collective class consciousness across racial divides. And the implications of this are, for example, that white racial interest can undermine broader class interest 
as workers identifying with whiteness will often align with the white bourgeoisie within a nationalist racial project against the interests of workers of colour and even against their own interests as workers in some cases. So this way of understanding the dynamics of class and race within the phenomenology of work, as Robinson puts it, also allows us to overcome simplistic readings which hold that an end to racialized exclusion in and of itself is necessarily emancipatory. So one instructive case through which to explore this is through Henry Ford's self-described Ford Empire, the operations of mass production which brought the world to the ideology and the organising system of Fordism. So if we take Ford's River Rouge plant in Dearborn, Michigan, the assembly line production set up here was the largest in, in US history. And it was also really famous for employing African-American workers. And this is often inaccurately presented as evidence of Ford's progressivism in the sense that the employment of black workers countered segregationist industrial practices. But when we look a bit more closely, black workers were overwhelmingly employed in the hot and dangerous parts of Ford plants in the US. So they were exposed to more harm and risk than his white workers were. So as a scholar called Elizabeth Etch explains in her book, The Colour Line and the Assembly Line, Ford also had a specific view of the African-American workers who made the journey up to Michigan to seek work in his car plants. So unlike European immigrants who Ford originally sought to Americanize, Etch argues that Ford thought of black migrant workers to Detroit as more akin to colonized subjects and treated them as such. African-American workers were to the company neither sufficiently American nor Americanizable. So again, engagement with empirical examples of capitalist exploitation reveal the tendency to differentiate and exploit difference. And the phenomenology of work alone may not be enough to overcome this in order to forge a universal class consciousness. So finally, to go back to the third adjustment to Marx, the analytical shift from the factory to the plantation and other formative sites of capitalist production, reveals that enslaved and other forms of unfree labour cannot be confined to a pre-capitalist phase, but has instead endured in various forms for, for centuries. But really importantly, the forms of political consciousness generated among the enslaved, the indentured, and among those who built maroon communities and other projects of resistance show that, again in Robinson's words, the European proletariat and its social allies did not constitute the revolutionary subject of history. So if we move away from European factories and consider the plantations of the world which have been so formative to capitalist development, we find that plantations have always been productive of new peasant worker subjectivities, which in turn have been prone to resistance and rebellions. 
and the enslaved, indentured and free but exploited plantation workers have a special place in the historiography of anti-colonial struggles as agents contributing to radical changes in the global political economy through the formal liberation of colonised areas. And these deserve much more attention in global histories of resistance and, and revolution. So just to round off and summarise, racial capitalism asks us to think again about the centrality of race and to the formation of capitalism, as well as the ways in which race operates and is reproduced in the novel market spaces of the present day. It asks us also to be attuned to the constant production and reproduction of difference and the exploitation and expropriation of those who are differentiated as inferior. But it also causes us to pay more attention to those who have been and remain revolutionary subjects of history, the enslaved, the maroons, anti-colonial plantation workers, migrant workers, and others who might not fit the frame of the ideal working class figure, but who've done so much to deliver rights and justice globally. <laughs>